Today I read something on Twitter that really pissed me off, which of course makes sense because it's Twitter. Before today, I didn't know who Jordan Schachtel was, but somehow I came across his Twitter feed and he identifies as a quote unquote independent journalist. And while I'm sort of unfamiliar with that phrase, I guess it makes sense. I mean, I'm a journalist, but while I have a publisher, I don't actually have an employer. So maybe I'm an independent journalist too. Anyhow, here's a tweet that did it for me via Jordan. He wrote, Gavin Newsom took his booster shot 11 days ago. He has since canceled all of his scheduled appearances and has not been seen in public since then. And obviously the suggestion here is that something went wrong with the booster shot, which leads to the question any journalist worth his salt would ask Jordan Schachtel, independent journalist. Who'd you call to find out what happened to California's governor? Do you have any sources telling you it's booster related? Did you reach out to anyone? Did you do some digging? Did you ask any questions? Because that's what real journalists do. They probe and they dig and they rely on trust and elbow grease and experience. What they don't do is put out some weak-ass suggestion without knowing a damn thing about it. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sing and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Ann Byrne, the food writer and New York Times bestselling author of such books as A New Take on Cake, American Cake, Skillet Love, and The Cake Mix Doctor. Oh, and he also cost me a job. Sort of. This is episode number 233. Let's sing some yang. Dad, I left for college. Nobody here has ever heard of you. All right, well, Ann, first of all, thank you for doing this. I feel like there's something that needs to get out here between us that's been hanging over us. For 25 years, which is, <laughs> is 26 that? years, which is you stole my job, man. You, um, I was the very well-established food writer for, for the Nashville, Tennessee. And, and one day my boss, Catherine Mayo, comes in and she says, we hired a new food writer. And I'm like, who is this hack who's going to take my place? And it was you. And you've never apologized. You, uh, you just kind of came in ruthlessly like a shark. Is there something you want to say to me all these all these years later? Well, Jeff, I didn't know I had that effect on you. But look, you know, maybe it was a blessing in disguise. I mean, you, you know, you got you got out of food and you went on to write about your passion and look what you've done. You know, so you got to thank me now. It's I just want to say for people who wouldn't know. So 1995, 1994, <laughs> I was hired by the Tennessee and I had interned there the year before a new editor, new features editor comes in, Catherine May. They have one slot open. She wants, she wants like creative or whatever, blah, blah, blah. So she hires a college kid. The only slot they have in food and fashion writer. They make me the food and fashion writer. <laughs> I, I know nothing, nothing about the subject. And, and after like a year of catastrophe, they bring in Ann Byrne. It's like replacing, I swear to God, pick the worst baseball player in America, replace him with Babe Ruth. That's basically what I got. <laughs> no, no, that was so funny. We had just, we had moved back to Nashville. Yeah. And so, so everybody knows, I mean, I had been the food editor at the Atlanta journal constitution for 15 years and it just so happened, you know, my husband was transferred to Nashville when we come to Nashville and I'd had two children by then and I was still itching to write, you know? So that's why I wanted to, you know, write. She's like, Oh yeah, this is the person. <laughs> and I remember like reading your resume or reading the announcement about you coming in or whatever it was and being like, oh yeah, 
that's actually, they just decided to get serious and actually get someone who knows what they're talking about. And, uh, but I remember thinking he's doing a great job. Oh you my know? God. And, and you were, you were, I was a yeah. worst food writer in America. There's no doubt about it. The worst. Listen, I've read some really bad food writers. I mean, I think, you know what? Uh, there's, you can either write about food from the perspective that you cook or you get really honest with people and you write and say, listen, I don't cook, but I love to eat. Right. Those to me are the two schools of food writing. And a lot of writers are not honest about being in either one. So, you know, I don't think you probably, you know, you didn't go home and cook, cook all that. You know, you didn't make your own puff pastry, but you were very authentic in what you wrote. And I think that's great. I at least used my oven five times when I was living in Tennessee. So uh, <laughs> right. um, let me ask you, actually, I'm going to ask you this first. I know you're not like a cocky person, so I'm not asking you to blah, blah, blah. Be cocky. Mm-hmm. What is the difference between a great food writer and mm-hmm. when you read someone who's a food writer and you're like, this person doesn't really know what they're talking about. Like, what is the difference? It kind of, you know, speaks to what I just said. I mean, I think a really great food writer is is, is authentic, you know, and 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 also giving giving of their own mistakes and their own journey in trying to like be a better food writer or feed better food to their family or whatever their mission is, whatever. Uh that they're really they have this conversation with the reader, you know, and and if you do. I have learned you get so much back. I mean, you learn so much from people who are older than you because they've been cooking longer, you know, or they lived in another part of the country and you'd never heard of this ingredient. So I think that's a really good food writer. So I guess what it is, you're authentic, but you also have an open mind, you know, and it's not always your way, you know, and I think that's where I am right now because I don't believe that my way is the only way. And what a boring world we would be, you know, we would live in if there was only one way to cook or one type of food. And we and I think food is a common denominator and it brings people together. So why not just sort of learn from each other? Is your idea. I'm not just going to tell you how to make the food. I'm going to tell you the backstory of the food. I'm going to tell you why you're going to like like what is what are you trying to give people? Yeah, I'm trying to inform them, first of all. You know, I may present readers like in my Substack, you know, with a recipe that I know they haven't tried, like the tart tatin, you know, this French apple tart. I know they have not tried it, but there's a pretty good reason they should try it because it's super delicious and it only has like four ingredients. So if you only have four ingredients in an apple pie, you know, it's going to come down to technique. And so that's where I think I'm being a good food writer to pass on what I learned to you. So that when you go in the kitchen and make that French apple tart, you won't have to go through the years of trial and experimentation that I did to get here. I'm going to give you the shortcuts. I feel like that's part of why I enjoy writing. So I want to give a backstory. I want to tell somebody something they might not know and then give them a great recipe. Okay. So you bust your ass learning how to make this and Mm -hmm. you go through the toil and you get the perfect ingredients Mm-hmm. And you're a very established food writer. And obviously, you know how to cook and bake and you're a star and blah, blah, blah. You give the recipe to a reader. Is it possible they can make it as good as you just made it, even though you like went through every depth to make it good? Like, can they replicate that? Or is that ridiculous? That would be like, that would be my goal that I would write it in a way. So that gets to the part of writing about food. Will it turn out the same? No. Uh, I took a cooking class many years ago. Oh, my gosh. 30 something years ago. And what I learned, we were all given maybe 25 of us in a class and we were all given the same recipe for a turkey and vegetable soup. 
And then we were just told to go make it. And we made it. And then we gathered back for lunch and everybody's soup was different. And the reason is that we all cut carrots differently the, and we all saute differently. We use different pans. We weren't told like what size pan to use. So if you saute some onions and carrots in a, in a very wide skillet, you have a lot of surface area. You crank up the heat a little bit and you're going to get some browning and some caramelization. If you pick a smaller pan with less surface area, a lower heat, you know, and you chop your carrots chunkier, then they're not going to brown. They might sweat. So when they go into that soup, it's a completely different flavor. So we're all different. We're all human. We're all going to cut the apples differently. We're going to, our ovens are different, but I think it's just creating your own frame of reference on recipes that you can produce out of your kitchen. And you probably think that was a pretty darn good pie. Is there a right way and a wrong way? Like, I'm making apple pie and you say, use this amount, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. If you really got down to it, is there a right way to cut the apples? Is there a right thickness for the apples or is that interpreted? That's a really, really, really good question. And you can get super, super precise about bake, especially baking, cooking, not so much, but baking. Yeah. I mean, you could measure the apples and know that a third of an inch is probably perfect because in the amount of time it takes to bake the pie or caramelize the apples, you know, they retain their shape, but they cook through. Um, So I will oftentimes give kind of a guide, like, you know, slice them about a quarter inch thick or a third of an inch thick just to help people think. But I know they're not going to get out the tape measure. You know, they're not they're going to eyeball it. So it's just a it's just a. It's a start. I just want to say, all right, so you you have a sub stack called Between the Layers and um, you wrote mm-hmm. something on October 12th. Not just apple pie, it's tart tatine. Tatine? Tatin. Tatin. And I'm not French, but you know. You're more French than me because you can pronounce tatin. It's the nasal sound at the end. You can do it. Tatin. Tata. 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 Like if you're going to tell your child to stop touching something hot, what would you say? Tata. Tata. Like Boston, like park the park the car. Park the car. That's right. <laughs> All right. So you wrote, it's fall, the comfort season of warm blankets and cozy food. I'm sorry, dear pumpkin, but you've got enough first Thanksgiving attention and been showered with all those Starbucks spices. So it's time to talk apples and apple pie. In other places, especially Europe and specifically in France, autumn is about apples. They were cooking with apples before Johnny Appleseed sprinkled seeds from Pennsylvania to Ohio. And the French are known for a legendary apple confection baked with pastry upstairs and caramelized apples below, then flipped over to wild applause. That would be the tata, or mm-hmm. more correctly, Les Demoiselles Tarte Tata. Thank you. An upside down apple skillet pie. And I'm going to skate on thin ice here as an American food writer, but someone who has baked tata for years, but never ever figured it out and tell you the story and how I just baked the best tart ever. And then you go into this really detailed and fascinating sort of background of this dessert. What is actually the research process like for <laughs> digging into what you are making? Oh, I don't know. Mine, mine is different. And I don't do these types of stories on Substack every week. So I would say, and I've only been writing a food on Substack since late April of this year. So, you know, I'm definitely... I'm throwing a lot of pitches to get into your world just to see what works. And I so this would be under the category uh, recipes you've never tried before, but it has a really great story and it's in season. And I've 
did one this summer. I, I decoded chocolate chip cookies, which people really love. So I baked chocolate chip cookies all summer to really find out why mine turned out flat and how to make the perfect chocolate chip cookie. People loved it. So this was a history dig. Um, I, you know, I know a lot about it. I have a lot of French cookbooks. I went back through those. I found that uh, website, you know, tartetin.org, which was just like a super resource of all this. This guy was so into this apple pie. He's great. And he actually ended up emailing me back, you know, the night before this published. Uh, I think he's in the healthcare world. He lives in Indianapolis, but he grew up in France in that little village, you know, which is so hilarious um, where the tart was born. But then you can get down so many rabbit holes, Jeff. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, if you, oh gosh, there's so much bad, you know, information out there in food as well. It's not true. Like saying, you know, that the guy from Maxime's restaurant, you know, went back and stole the recipe. I mean, but it's so much fun for me to read. And so I... I want the Substack to be informational, but also, you know, enjoyable, because I know that there are a lot of folks who subscribe who are never going to make that apple pie, but they like reading about it. I have two thoughts to this. Number one, moving from France to Indianapolis is like going from like <laughs> the tartare to like a McDonald's apple pie. And <laughs> well, it's that you know what? It's, it's the land of snickerdoodles and Mike Pence. There oh you go. God. Number two, my favorite part by far. And you do it for food and I do it for whatever book sports wise. I'm right. The dig. Like, I love the dig. I love everything you just said about you start in one book and then you go to two books and then you find this little thing that takes you down this rabbit hole. And the beauty is you haven't paid attention to the news at all. You're just all about apples and you get lost in it. Because you love it, right? It's just the best. You love it. Yeah. And I don't and see, I get a lot of like positive reinforcement at home because like my husband's favorite dessert in the entire world is apple pie. And he has said for I don't know how many years, you don't ever make it enough. So when I told him I was digging into like he was helping me find the French cookbooks. I mean, we were <laughs> I had a companion. He was he was as interested and said and he wanted oh get this. And he wanted to put like cheddar cheese on it like his mother did and stuff and, you know, smother it with cream. And I was like. No, you have to like eat it plain first. You have to taste it. Yeah. You feel like a lot of people are scarred by the food that their mother served them. Yes, I do. I do. That's a terrible responsibility on mothers or maybe fathers today. I'm talking about from our generation, though, because most of our, our yeah. people were, where the mom was cooking, just, you know, realistically. Yeah, I do think so. But I think that there's hope because even if like I have learned from writing, you know, books, all kinds of books like The Cake Mix Doctor, whatever, that, you know, even if people like like if their mother never baked a scratch cake, you know, and she, they kind of grew up with, on cake mix cakes or funfetti or confetti or bakery cake or whatever, when they get to where they want to bake, they're really intrigued by scratch baking, you know, and they kind of dive into it and the vice versa. If you grow, I grew up with scratch, you know, baking, and then my mother kind of started using mixes. And then I thought, well, I can use mixes when I get busy too. So I kind of do both. Um, I don't really have a prejudice against cake mixes. Uh, Cause I know that they're, you know, for a lot of people, they're cheap and they're easy and, you know, they work. I, uh, I grew up with a mother who put um, ketchup on spaghetti. Oh, she don't, Jeff. That's terrible. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. My mother put ketchup. She put ketchup or tomato sauce in pot roast. It was pretty bad. Yeah, it's pretty bad. And, and the squiggle line down the meatloaf, you know, with ketchup, which actually I still do that. I mean, spaghetti sauce and ketchup are both red, so they do have something in common. 
I guess so. You'd think they probably were pushing a lot of ketchup. You know, the ketchup was used in a lot of recipes, more recipes than it's used today, come to think of it. It was the mayonnaise of ketchup. It was the mayonnaise, yeah. I've been thinking about this. Mm-hmm. When I was first dating my wife, I had an idea for a meal, okay? Banana chicken, right? Banana chicken, okay. okay. <laughs> All right, I'm actually being serious here. You make and develop recipes. You have cookbooks of your recipes, 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 recipes. Mm-hmm. I have no idea how one comes up with a recipe. No idea. Let's say I'm Ann Byrne and the idea mm-hmm. comes into my head, banana chicken. That's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like it. I'm actually being serious. Soup to nuts. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. Developing a recipe for banana chicken. Okay. Well, First of all, the banana is very unusual to pair with the chicken, but think about it. Bananas have been used in as a, like a garnish for curries and things. So I probably would go full flavor on this one. Um, I would kind of pull in some really aromatic herb spices and herbs that are that go into curries. So I would think along that line. And also bananas caramelize really well because they have a lot of natural sugar in them. So you think bananas foster. So then I would think like the cut of chicken. Is this a, is this a quick dish? It's something that I would like fix in the skillet, you know, really quickly. If so, then that kind of dictates what cut of chicken I would use. It may be, it would be slices of chicken or it would be like a pounded cutlet of chicken, something like that, like saute, add that spices. Or is it a brazy kind of thing? And then you could get into, you know, chicken thighs. Actually, they're good on a high heat roast. Or you could do like bone-in chicken. So maybe I would probably go with boneless chicken thighs. I would put them in a Ziploc. And I would then just spice the heck out of them. I would put in turmeric and cumin and fresh ginger and paprika, cayenne pepper, spice it up, coriander. And then I would slice in some raw onion in there, some some kind of acid, douse it with fish sauce and some lemon or lime juice, good bit, and then some oil to keep it moist, neutral oil or olive oil. Then seal that up, massage it a good bit, get it nice and, you know, mix together, throw it in the fridge. As long as possible, overnight, great, three or four hours better. Take those thighs out and roast them at a high heat, maybe 20, 25 minutes. And the other thing I would do is to get a saute pan going and saute some bananas. And oh, and cinnamon would have been a spice I would have put in there too. And really do a saute in butter or oil of bananas sprinkled with cinnamon, maybe a little cumin and some sugar and let that caramelize. And then when the roasted chicken thighs with all of those aromatic spices come out, then I would serve it on a platter surrounded by the sauteed bananas and I would top it with fresh cilantro. Okay. I'm just going to be blunt. That was fucking bonkers. Like that right there <laughs> is the reason why I was on the high school wrestling beat within, <laughs> within a week of your arrival. That was in, wait, I'm being sincere as literal as you can get. How is your brain working right there? My brain is like, I saw I read something as I wake up caffeinated. I wake up caffeinated. I go to sleep caffeinated. My brain seldom sleeps. But I create a recipe based on taste. And I and my mother used to cook this way, too. And she was a really good cook. It's almost like I can taste what you ask me 
to make. So then I just need to take it back to the beginning. I know those flavors that would bring bananas and chicken together. I cook chicken thighs that way a lot. It's kind of like a shawarma thing where you're just a lot of just great, bold flavors and spices go into the bag. And then a high heat roast uh, boneless, scandalous chicken thighs. It's fantastic. And you serve it with rice. Uh, it's so easy. Kids eat it. You can have leftovers the next day, like in a wrap for lunch. But you're just bringing in bananas and bananas like cinnamon and they like spice and they fall apart easily. And you don't want them to do that. So you could roast them. You could roast them. You could roast them on the pan. You could do that along with the chicken thighs. That might be fun to try too. <laughs> All right. So wait, follow up question on this. When you were making, you were creating recipes. Mm-hmm. So let's say you were literally like, oh, I'm going to make banana chicken. My next cookbook, I got banana chicken. Do you have to make it? then think that's off, then make it again, then that's off, then make it again. Or can you be like, I just, it needs a little more of this or a little less of this. And I know that from the taste and I can just make that my recipe. No, I do it again and again. The way I write a a savory recipe is to kind of give a lot of allowance, you know, for people adding spices that they want. I always say if desired, optional, you know, variations. I write recipes with tons of variations, all based probably on that experience I described to you where we made the turkey vegetable soup and I realized nobody's was the same because you're not going to make banana chicken in your house. You're going to make it using the spices you've got, you know, so why run to the store? And spices like coriander are so expensive. I'm not going to send people to the store. That's not my market. That's not who I write for. I write for people who want to use what they've got in-house fairly quickly. You got a journalism degree from the University of Georgia. When did you know you wanted to actually be a food writer? I didn't until I was hired. (laughs) So I always wrote about, so I interned, I grew up in Nashville and I interned for the banner back then, which was the afternoon paper. And I wrote just any kind of hard news. I wrote whatever they gave me. And I wrote during the summer and during Christmas break. And I actually was in the newsroom the night that Elvis died. Uh, in 1976. So I was the only person in the newsroom. And so I covered Elvis's death and it went on 1A and my father was so proud. Wait, time out. What do you remember about that? I remember being alone in the newsroom and the guy from UPR AP, the guy with the beard running into the newsroom, holding like, you know, the wire paper kind of copy or whatever going, the king is dead or something like that. And I was like, what? You know, Elvis has died. And I remember the city editor way across the room looking at me and go, well, you're up, you know, and I that was before cell phones. I called my parents and said, you know, I don't I don't think I'm going to be in tonight, you know, and I went all over. They signed me a photographer, the only guy who was on duty. And we drove all over Nashville and we interviewed people who were like Elvis, just fanatics. And they were in mourning. I mean, it was it was weird for me because I didn't have that connection to Elvis but it was a look inside real life at that point. I mean, people were grieving. They loved him. So then I had to go back, write the story and it, and it went out, you know? So it was crazy. You're at the banner. You don't know you want to be a food writer. You just, I want to be a journalist. So I had all this experience. And when I went back to college, I would like exempt out of these classes. <laughs> and I would, you know, I told my parents, I said, I don't have to take this class this semester. Well, just find something you need to take, you know? And so I would substitute classes from other, you know, other 
other places on campus. So I took a lot of uh, food classes because I thought it was interesting. So that should have said something. I went over to the home ec school and took a class on equipment. I don't know why. And then I took a dietetics class. Um, it was interesting. And it was really I didn't like the teachers so much. They did not bend, you know, no substitutions whatsoever. It was their way or the highway. Um, and then when I graduated, I, you know, I just sent out a whole bunch of letters and, you know, resumes. And I really kind of thought maybe I'll work for Southern Living. But I heard through the grapevine that the Atlanta papers were looking for a food writer and that and uh, that they were looking to hire somebody who had journalism skills and not necessarily, you know, having been writing about food before. So, that was me. And they hired me, at, you know, with no food writing experience whatsoever. And the reason was they just wanted me to be able to write and make deadlines and that the cooking and the food would come. And that's that's exactly what happened. So basically, we were hired for the same reason. You just got good at it. Well, I was interested in it, too. I don't know. Were you not interested? in no. <laughs> Zero. Zero. Literally zero. So there you go. You know, you write about, you know, you write about your passion and and uh, and you're going to write and you're going to enjoy every minute of it. You know, is your passion more food or is your passion more writing? I think Substack has brought back the writing passion. I have cookbooks, writing cookbooks on deadline for editors. You'll pretty much lose any passion you had about writing because so much of it is creating the amount of recipes that you've agreed by contract to do, working with a photographer. I'm already, you know, working on a, thinking about a new project, thinking ahead, and, and I'm dealing with hiring a photographer and, and worrying about those kind of issues now. It's really not about writing. I was not good about blogging on my website because I just wasn't, it was just always something I could do. I didn't have to do. And I think Substack has brought back those deadlines and it has made me think quickly and clearly. And um, I have really, really enjoyed it. But I think in life, you know, I've had three kids and a family. And so I've, I've done a fair bit of cooking and my books have always reflected whatever, whatever I was into, whatever I've cooked. Wait, so do the cookbooks at times feel just like content mill? Definitely in the early years. Like when I wrote The Cake Mix Doctor came out in 2000, Right after that, I mean, it was a success. And so they were pushing me to come out with another. And I did a chocolate one, you know, within a year and a half, I had to create a chocolate uh, book. And then I did one on dinner. I mean, I had like seven or eight books, bam, 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 every year. And my kids were young. But on the other hand, I was doing a lot of cooking. And um, I think the travel part of it with book tours, that was tough when my kids were young for me. And it was just sheer content. Um, I did the history of American cake, American cake, and then I did cookie. That was fantastic. And that project brought me back to writing and brought me back to research. And I really, really loved that. So I think it really just depends on the project. Uh, you can you can write about food and continue to learn. It just, it depends on the project. This is what blew me away. And I guess I should have known this and not been, I was looking at your Wikipedia page, which doesn't mean it's always correct, but I'm assuming Said by 2013, Barron has sold over 3.5 million copies of her cookbooks, which I assume since then, that's eight years ago. Yeah. Yeah. It's around, I've sold around 4 million books. Okay. <laughs> or maybe a little over. That's insane. How does one sell 4 million books? Well, I did a lot of QVC for those books. Those books that I wrote, like The Cake Mix Doctor, Dinner Doctor, you know, What Can I Bring? Those books were aimed at the same market 
that I was, the busy mother with three children, a crazy busy, or somebody who really doesn't want to be in the kitchen all that often. So that is QVC's market. I have sold over 400,000 books just on QVC. I mean, I think that had a good bit to do with it, maybe. Um, But also, get this, when I was writing those books, it was 20 years ago, and the whole book market was different. You know, there were, there was not blogging, there were not bloggers, influencers, not everybody could get a book deal. There were fewer cookbook writers. So there were fewer cookbooks out there. Now it's, it's much tighter. It's much more competitive. Um, you're not going to sell that many books. You can't sell those, those numbers of books unless you're Chrissy Teigen or, you know, somebody like that. Does the 30-year-old mom or dad nowadays mm-hmm. want a cookbook? What I mean is like, are they actually, are they just getting their recipes off the internet? Are they actually going to stores and buying cookbooks still? That's a good question. I think uh, I would tell you based on just my daughter's, they are getting their recipes online, uh, but they may actually be subscribing to someone that they follow. And I think that's a good re- another reason that some cookbooks really sell is that people want they want that physical copy of some of a writer that they value their work or they like their voice or they like the way she looks, you know, or or they like to look inside pictures of her home. You know, they're they're impressed by her or him. So I think today books to, to write a cookbook and, you, you know, you almost have to have these other extensions, whether it's a television show, you know, a newsletter. Um, it, it's different today. It's, it's uh, you're not going to sell as many books. When you see like whatever Snoop Dogg's cooking or <laughs> John Legend and Chrissy Teigen's recipes from home as a, you know, master of the of the craft and as someone who's devoted her life to this. Are you like, oh, that's great. More people involved in cooking. Or are you like, eh? I don't feel one way or the other. I'll be honest with you. I mean, would I buy their book eh, if I really was in love with them? Would I know that the recipes work? Uh, probably they had somebody work on the book with them. In all reality, you're, they're not going to get a book published today unless they've got like a co-writer, a ghostwriter, somebody with them. And usually those people make pretty good money. So they probably got a pretty good ghostwriter who's testing all those recipes. I think what I, what I see, especially like, like Trisha Yearwood and some people who buy, you know, country music, star cookbooks and things like that. They have an idea of a food that they think, you know, Trisha Yearwood makes. Um, And if Trisha Yearwood kind of steps out of that mold you know, and put cilantro on her chicken, you know, or put those bananas on the chicken and stuff. They're not going to be real happy about it. You know, they want Trish, they want Trisha to keep making fried chicken for Garth, you know, and cornbread. And that's what they want. So I, I, and that's the criticism I see, which is, it's just, it's just fan worship. You know, it's, they're not, those are not so much cookbook as they are of a lifestyle book, you know, perhaps or celebrity book. Would you be willing to co-author with me, um, Jeff Perlman's banana chicken cookbook? <laughs> <laughs> so I think you ought to do a substack on it. Before we continue with two writers slinging yang, a word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and today I'm holding open auditions for the new two writers slinging yang Royal Retro spokesperson. Okay, okay, everyone, thank you for attending. So we need you to really sell it. Royal Retro's awesome clothing, throwback stuff, USFL, cool website, royalretros.com. All right, um, Mr. Nate Lewis. Nate Lewis, you read the script first. I don't want to wear my Aaron Rodgers jersey anymore. Give me some Chuck Fusina. 
Uh, can you try that with a little more emotion? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was that was great. All right, next up, um, Theo Lewis. Go. Uh, I don't want to let Alan ride your show again. Give me some Chuck Fusina. Um, yeah, don't, no, 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 don't call us. We'll, we'll, we'll definitely reach out to you. You're on Substack. You've been on Substack since April. It's called Between the Layers. You seem to kind of love Substack. Am I wrong on this? I do love Substack. It's brought writing back into my life. I absolutely love it, you know? I, did, I mentioned to you that, you know, I forgot at 11 o'clock last night, I went, oh my gosh, I had written a column for tomorrow, you know? And so, but, but I knocked, I knocked something out and I think it's going to be pretty good. And I like the fact that, you know, that I have to do it and you have to do it because people subscribe and you're kind of making this, you're sort of agreeing with them. Okay. I'm going to give you content. Uh, and if I take your money, you know, I'm going to give you something for it. So I feel like responsible. Wait, so why did you even, what made you go to Substack? Oh, uh, I think I had a number of people pushing me to do it, pushing me. You know, I, yeah, I've kind of got a circle of friends, food friends, you know, and we kind of keep up with each other. We help each other uh, network. And, you know, they were all kind of pushing me because I've written so many books. I kind of have content, you know, I can like write a recipe out of my head or I've got some good photography from this book or that. So I kind of have for a food Substack, I have a lot of this stuff already kind of in the bank that I can rely on. You know, I know it's fall. I know it's Apple's time. I'm not new to food writing. So, and also I'm at a point in my life where I really don't care. You know, I can say what I want to say. And um, if somebody likes it, then they subscribe. If they don't, they can unsubscribe. Um, And, you know, it doesn't, it's not that controversial in food, you know, either. Um, But it's fun to be, and that's why I named it Between the Layers, because I thought, you know, this is where I can write about life or food or gardening or whatever I'm doing, and it doesn't fit the mold of a cookbook. It's different. And that is what I try to ask myself every week, you know, when I post is, what about this is different? Why, why does it belong on Substack? One thing that's really good about it, at least for me personally, is like, so I've always thought of you as a food writer, right? And Mm -hmm. I guess there's a certain box that that puts you in. And then I'm reading your Substack and I'm like, it's not really a food writer. You're actually just a really good writer who happens to write about food. Thank you. I just think it's, it's, beautifully written and like artfully done. Aww. I just think it's great. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah. Well, it gives you, you know, you never know things about yourself until you try and it, it and it feels good. And I'm sure you've had those projects too, or have written things where, you, you know, you, it, it just feels good. And that's probably a good sign that it is good. The thing you said that I actually love the most and I actually underlined, you just said it. You said, I'm at a point in my life where I don't care. I've reached that point too. Right. I've reached that point too, where I used mm-hmm. to be really nervous about what people thought about what I wrote. And I was mm-hmm. nervous about reactions. I got to say it's journalistically, it's the most liberating thing in the world. Mm-hmm. Like I think, I think even a subsec in and of itself is really liberating. Like you're not worried they- about the editor cutting out your stuff. You're not worried about people saying this is awful. You're not worried about, they're not going to have enough space. So you got to cut 15 inches. And I think when you reach this point as a journalist, mm-hmm. you are just really confident in what you're doing, comfortable with who you are, and not concerned that Marge from Franklin is going to hate your recipe. Right. It's a very healthy place to be. It is very healthy. And the, the platform, Substack platform, is really, I think, 
easy to use. It's real nimble. Uh, so people who like think they can't do this, they probably can. You know, if you post something and, you know, you realize later you've got a typo or, you know, you, you got the number wrong, you can go in to edit the post and, um, and make that correction, you know, and it updates the post online. So I think it's got a lot of editing capabilities. The style is nice. You know, you don't have to be a designer to do it. They tell you where to drop it. You know, if you want to drop in a photo, I love it. And I, I, so I, I, I couldn't be happier with it. I think the challenge, and I was on a call actually last night with Substack, with a, with a group of people on Substack. And I think the challenge is to, to get people to pay for it. So I've got about 21,600 some odd subscribers free. Subscriber oh, free. free. Yeah, yeah. No, otherwise, yeah, I'd be rolling. But no, I've only got, you know, less than 200 paid. And uh, and I think that is the challenge. Uh, and Substack, you know, believes that you should continue to pump out, you know, really good content for everybody, which I agree. And that at some point, the everybody's will say, wow, she's really busting her ass out here and we need to we need to pay her. You know, we need to subscribe. It's kind of like listening to NPR every morning and not giving, you know, are they going to guilt you into it finally? That is the challenge for me because... In this world, like you said, with younger people, or they they can get free, everybody can get free content online. What is it that makes somebody subscribe to your newsletter so that you, as a journalist, can make a living at it? And we all know that as writers and authors of books, cookbooks, you know, you get paid to do a project. You know, you get paid enough. Good. You know, do you earn through the royalties? You know, what kind of living are you making off of that? Um, and I think Substack offers a way to sort of have some income in between projects or to take over for those projects that you're tired of writing. But you've got to figure out a way to monetize it. And and I'm just speaking really honestly here. And And maybe in your world, people are willing to pay for content. But I think in the food world, they're slow to pay for content. Since we both have newspaper backgrounds, I blame all of this. I'm not, I'm actually not being sarcastic. Mm -hmm. Newspapers being dumb when the internet came along and giving it all away for free and building the expectation that stuff should just be free. Yeah, I think you're right. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, and, and people look at like paywalls and stuff now, it's like an annoyance, you know, they don't really... Oh, they're aggravated. So they go find another way to get it for free. You know, I've got some of that in me too. (laughs) (laughs) But but I've learned the Substack that the reason you pay, and I do pay to subscribe to some, is that you want to support that person. So, yeah. Let me ask you a final question. So I ask every sports writer, what is the worst moment they've had covering an athlete? I ask every songwriter or singer, what's her worst moment on stage? I don't know what the equivalent of that would be for a food writer. Maybe what's your worst? Did you have you had a food nightmare in your life? A food catastrophe? Oh gosh, I think I had a lot of food catastrophes. It wasn't a it wasn't a catastrophe, but it was a nightmare. I about two years ago, I pre, I did the desserts for a dinner at the James Beard House for a woman, Natalie Dupree, who was has been a mentor to me in food, and it was a big celebration, fancy fancy, and there were about six chefs, they're all women, in the kitchen, and I had dessert, and I had helped everybody else prep 
their courses all the way through. And when it came time to for my course, which was, you know, almost 200 individual cakes with ice cream sauces and garnish laid out, uh, most of the chefs went up to drink a glass of champagne and to toast the crowd and to toast the host. And I was left in the kitchen to get out 200 something desserts with one helper. That was a nightmare. And since after that, I, I asked pastry chefs and I said, is this what happens <laughs> like when you do a dinner? And they said, pastry is always dead last. Nobody has room for it. And every everybody's out of the kitchen. So there you go. Were you able to get them out? Yes. Got them out. Got them out. But it was a multi-course meal and I don't think any, and, you know, and, and, and people weren't even hungry for it anymore. Um, but we did get it out. Terrific staff at the James Beard house. And I learned a big lesson. I learned a lesson. Next time I will bring my own help, my own assistance, my own group of people. And I think that's what folks do who do this a lot. So. I'm available. Okay. I'm in. Something with bananas. Yeah, with bananas. <laughs> and I just want to say, I do think it needs to be said that between, so basically the back-to-back food writers for the National Tennessean combined to sell 4 million cookbooks. I think that's a, that's a credit to both of us. I think it's awesome. Well, I appreciate you doing this. I've been an admirer and a, and a fan, obviously, for, for many years. Oh, and I, I was actually thinking today, it brings me joy that we're still in touch because it's such a quirky sort of thing that brought us together in life, you know, and it's kind of cool. And I, uh, you know. Very cool. And we have the same agent. So and that's we have cool. the same agent. Exactly. <laughs> thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Jeff, for having me on. I've loved it. I want to thank today's guest, Ann Byrne, for joining me on Two Riders Sling and Yang. You can follow Ann on Twitter at Ann Byrne. And visit her Substack at annburn.substack.com. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and leaving a nice review. I make no money for doing this, and I depend on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing. <laughs>